We're continuing in the book of Zechariah. If you haven't been around this summer, you're like, wow, Zechariah, what a choice. Um, there is a reason that we, for the, for the imagery, we did a, a roller coaster because it is a roller coaster of a book to try and follow. There are times when uh, you might feel like your stomach's sort of falling out um, and, and times that are thrilling and times that are boring. Um, but the message has proved to be so relevant for us. So as we go to God's word this morning, I'll invite you to pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I encouraged us to read the back half of the book of Zechariah, which is mostly oracles, um, with multiple angles in mind. So not to come at it just flatly and be like, what does it say? But to look at it from different angles, like, what did it mean to the original audience that first received it in the 6th century B.C. from Zechariah? Is this a text that becomes richer over time? That's another angle. And then, of course, the angle that's always important to ask in any text is, so what? What does that mean for me here today? How does it translate to my life? Um, And I told you that we would be using this multiple angle method again for these oracles, and here we are. We get to do it again. So for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at a couple themes in Zechariah's chapter 11 through 13. Last week in Zechariah chapter 10, um, Zechariah contrasted God as the good shepherd for his people with the bad shepherds of the day, leaders who did not have their best interest in mind. And he expands on that illustration in chapters 11 through 13, talking about leadership. So would you please stand as you're able for our scripture readings this morning. One one of them comes from chapter 11, and one of them comes from chapter 13. It's 11, 4 through 14, and 13, 7 through 9. Hear God's word, if it's helpful for you. The few Bibles are there as well. You can feel free to follow along. Thus says the Lord my God, be a shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them and kill them go unpunished, and those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord. I will cause them, every one, to fall into the hands of a neighbor and each into the hand of a king, and they shall devastate the earth. And I will deliver no one from their hand. So on behalf of the sheep merchants, I became a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. I took two staffs. One of them I named Favor. The other one I named Unity. And I tended the sheep. In one month I disposed of three shepherds, for I had become impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I won't be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. Let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. So I took the staff named Favor and I broke it annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep merchants who were watching me knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it into the treasury, the lordly place which I, at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And then I broke my second staff named Unity, annulling the family ties between Judah and Israel. And then from Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land, says the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire, refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Okay, so I promise you, as we've done so many times in this series, I promise you that some of this, I will try and promise you that some of this will make sense as we go along, that there is indeed an application for all of us that we need to hear here today. But I need you to stick with me through the first couple of angles that I want to work through. It's a little bit dense. Please hang with me because then the application will make sense and you won't miss it, okay? So the first angle that we need to view a text like this is what did this word mean for the people who originally received it in the time of Zechariah, 6th century B.C. in Jerusalem? Uh, We introduced the concept of leadership last week, and this passage is really all about leadership for God's people. The people of God in Zechariah's time were suffering because of a major crisis of leadership, a major crisis of leadership. The nations of of Babylon and Persia had indeed allowed the exiles to return back to Jerusalem, but they were still very much overseers. They were very much in charge. In chapter 11, God looks at these leaders, these bad shepherds, and he says, this flock, this people under this leadership, they're doomed to slaughter. It's hard for me to read that even. This is a people that are doomed for slaughter. Now, it is true that sheep in, in ancient Israel were raised as food, Uh, oftentimes, but that's not the analogy that's being used here. Because good shepherds, what they do is they protect sheep from destruction, while bad shepherds neglect their duties by not caring for the injuries of their sheep and allowing the sheep to be eaten either by animals or to be sold for slaughter. God is saying that the current leaders of his people are negligent. They just don't care. Even worse, verse 5 introduces the ideas that there are buyers and sellers who are who are making transactions over the flock. Buyers are those who transfer ownership of the flock to their own care for their own reward, but they don't care about the sheep. They're not interested in raising them, rearing them, caring for them. They just want the flock so that they can slaughter them as food and sell it. And then the sellers are only interested in making money off the sheep. So there's not only a leadership issue here, but there's also economic oppression that's happening amongst the people. The people are essentially being bought and sold by the interests of other nations. And the shepherds, they stand by as the buyers and sellers do their transactions, they do their business, and they abandon their responsibility to protect the flock, the people of God. So in verse 7, God can't just allow this to happen, right? So he takes over. He becomes the shepherd for this flock that is doomed to slaughter. He takes two staffs. They have names, which is interesting. Uh, One is called favor and one is called unity. Uh, This is representative of how shepherds did things. They had a rod and a staff that they used to direct and guide the sheep where they needed to go. These were tools for their well-being and their direction. But in a highly symbolic act, God breaks the first staff, which is called favor. The Hebrew word here for favor is noam. It is connected with the idea of divine blessing. That doesn't mean that the divine blessing has gone from the people, but by breaking the staff, 
the people are to understand that God has broken his covenant that he made with the other nations. A covenant that nations like Persia and, and Babylon and Assyria would turn and become a blessing to Israel. He breaks that staff called unity, uh, or, or called, called favor, because he realizes that that is not going to happen anymore. They're not going to be a blessing to Israel. And then he breaks the second staff called unity, also could be called inheritance, it's the same word. Noting that this annuls the relationship between the remaining two tribes of Israel, Judah and Israel. So these two, these two nations, Judah and Israel, which had formerly constituted the United Kingdom of Israel under King David, by breaking unity as a staff, God is communicating that there's no hope that we're going to have a United Kingdom anymore. Okay, so what's the overall message here? It's a strange way of communication for us, but the original audience, I promise you, this message was clear enough for them because really what it is is they're saying, here's the reality of where you are. Here's the reality of where you are. The leaders that you have are bad. You are being bought and sold by foreign interests. You are being economically oppressed. And you cannot expect the nations to help you anymore. And the glory days of the United Kingdom are not coming back. That's the message. That's the message. Pretty bleak stuff, isn't it? But, but, God, in chapter 12, promises that even with this bleak situation, that they will overcome this as a people that Jerusalem will eventually be victorious, that the nations who have opposed them will be laid low. And that's good news until he tells them how it's going to happen. Verse, uh, chapter 13, that's the culmination of this oracle. God says this will happen because I'm going to send a good shepherd who is going to suffer. 13.7 says, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. That cannot be precisely what Zechariah's listeners were hoping for. I'll send a good shepherd, but he's going to be pierced. He's going to be struck down. And this is going to become a refining process for you as a people. And, and, and you will say, in the final words of 13, verse 9, the Lord is our God. So that's the first angle. It's a tough one for the people that originally heard it. Your lives are hard. You've had a tough go. I'm going to send a shepherd, but that shepherd's going to get struck down. It's going to die. And that's going to refine you somehow as a people, and you're going to turn to me. That's a sobering message. So instead of a victorious Davidic king to bring a united kingdom to them, they're going to get a suffering shepherd. Okay, second angle. Did this text get richer and better and finer over time? Yes, it did. Zechariah chapters 11 through 13 are actually quoted three times by the gospel writers. That's a lot for a small book in, in the Old Testament, which tells you that the gospel writers who were writing about the person of Jesus 500, year, 500 some years later, they resonated with this message. And it makes a ton of sense that they mes resonated with the message of Zechariah. Because much like the original audience, the first century Jews had a leadership problem. Their Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't care for the people. They were essentially negligent shepherds that were owned by the Romans. The people were commodities. They had been bought and sold to Rome. And they were destined for destruction, for slaughter. They were economically oppressed. They were taxed unevenly at, at, at unjust amounts. 
They had no nations to turn to for help, and there was no reasonable hope that they were going to return to a glorious temple and a Davidic king. Their situation felt very much the same as Zechariah's did 500 years earlier. That's why the gospel writers identified so much with these words. And think about it. I want to put up those three quotations for you. When When Jesus was sold out by Judas, Matthew references the prophets Jeremiah and Zechariah, particularly Zechariah 11:13, when he says, and they took out 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, directly from Zechariah. At the crucifixion of Jesus, when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side while he was on the cross, John quotes Zechariah 12:10, they will look upon the one that they have pierced. Mark quotes Zechariah 13.7 in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is in reference to the disciples abandoning Jesus in his time of need. Do you notice when all three of these quotations happen? Not at Jesus' birth, not during his ministry. They occur during his arrest and his crucifixion. So as the gospel writers are recounting Jesus' life after the fact and his death, Zechariah's words are an essential backdrop for them to understand what's going on. And the gospel writers have a vitally important perspective here that we cannot miss. They are writing about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the shepherd being struck down. But whereas Zechariah writes about this this shepherd suffering, being pierced and and struck down in a way that feels dour and depressing and kind of hopeless, the gospel writers go back to these texts, and they have like this incredible wonder as they're going back to these texts. Why is that? It's because these texts are getting richer as they're reading them. They go back over these texts from Zechariah 11 through 13, and there is a reverence and a worshipful attitude about these texts because it all is beginning to come together in their minds. Think about this. Jesus, in the midst of a whole bunch of people buying and selling his people who do not care for them, what does he do? He pays for his flock, his people, with his body, with his life. Even as as they were being bought and sold for selfish gain, he purchases those people with his death at the hands of the very buyers of his people, the bad shepherds, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Roman occupiers. By purchasing his people, he creates a remnant of people who would follow him, a new people, not the United Kingdom of the past under a Davidic king, but one, not not one that is protected by foreign entities, but one that is protected and cared for by God himself. His suffering does not spell doom for the people. It's their salvation. They were doomed to slaughter, but instead he bought them and he became slaughtered instead. So let me read Zechariah 13, 9 through 7 again for you. And please hear it through the lens of Jesus. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep may be scattered. 
I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, says the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put the third, this third, into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Yeah, this text got richer over time. Got richer over time. Last angle. Is God still speaking? What's the word saying to us right now? Well, let me ask. Are we experiencing a failure of leadership in our world today? Do we see the realities of economic oppression around us? Are we being bought and sold by foreign interests? Do we look around and often feel hopeless? There's a universality about these problems, friends. But then Jesus comes and enters in as a suffering servant, a shepherd who, who was slaughtered. How does that change things for us? Well, I, I'm struck at that. I, I'm struck by the reality of, of Jesus and how it transforms this text. In the 6th century B.C., this text was just kind of a downer. <laughs> like, this is a tough text, just deal with it. It's just suffering and loss. But then 500-some years later, and, and even now today, I think it's a text of great hope and great wonder. What changed? Well, I'll tell you what changed. The perspective on suffering. The perspective on suffering. Um, a dozen years ago or so, I, I was out in the driveway in February shoveling a, a ton of wet, heavy snow, and my back locked up. Anybody know that feeling? And when I say locked up, I mean, like, locked up. Like, I could not move. I was lucky enough to be able to, like, lean on a parked car and somehow kind of, like, roll my way into the house. Um, and I got on the ground on the carpet where I stayed immobilized for the better part of a week. Um, how, many of you, how many of you have been to PT before, physical therapy before? Is there anything more humbling in the world than physical therapy? I just remember um, uh, going to PT about a week after my injury, maybe a week and a half, trying to strengthen my back. As soon as I could get in a car to go, I was there. And, and, and I went in with this real determination that I was going to get stronger. Um, that, so I didn't, I didn't have to have these back issues. I was too young for this stuff. I got to get stronger. And, and I worked really hard. Um, it was super, super hard work, but I muscled through. I was feeling pretty good. I was feeling some relief in my back. Um, but in the third week of PT, I hit a wall. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, I should be able to do this, but I can't do this. I was on the table, and my physical therapist, I can't remember her name, but she was a real saint. She said, okay, can you just straighten your left leg and lift your foot about five inches off the table for 10 seconds? And I had done this numerous times before, but I could not do it. Like, my body would not let me do it. It's one of the strangest sensations where it's like, I can't lift my leg. Um, and so she asked again, and I gripped my teeth, but my body wouldn't let me do it. And she asked again, and something in me just, like, snapped, just broke. I began crying, uh, which was kind of embarrassing. Uh, I became angry, and I said, I told you I can't do it. And I think all the pain and, and fear and frustration came out all at once. I'm a grown man who cannot lift his leg five inches in the air. That's a humbling thing, right? So I was embarrassed. I was in pain. My PT, who I'm sure has dealt with way worse than me, I was very gracious. And she firmly explained that it is normal for you to have setbacks and that you need to push through the pain. And I will always remember what she said. She said, hey, you have to decide what your relationship is to pain. 
If pain is just bad, then you're never going to get better. But if you can decide that pain is good, then, you, then we can heal from this. You need to decide what your relationship is to pain. Friends, um, I think this complex, multi-layered passage in Zechariah invites us to decide what our relationship is to pain and suffering. If pain and suffering are just wholly bad things that are signs of some sort of lack of blessing, if they are things that you are supposed to avoid in your life at all costs, then what that's going to lead you to is a life of seeking comfort and safety and being disappointed and disillusioned whenever pain and suffering come to you. That's what your life's going to look like. But if pain and suffering is productive, if, as Zechariah 13 says, suffering is a refining agent in our lives, then we are going to become stronger, more mature, and more loving people when we experience pain. But here's the thing, and you, and you need to know this. This is really important. Suffering really makes no sense without Jesus. It makes no sense. The late, great Tim Keller wrote in, in a wonderful book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I recommend you all read it. Um, he compares views of, of pain and suffering within different religions and worldviews and ideologies, Buddhism, Islam, New Age, um, uh, uh, movements, etc., and he makes a really, really compelling case as he looks through all of these um, that, that the secular Western worldview that is the air that we breathe here in America is the least equipped of all sort of worldviews to deal with any kind of loss or disappointment because it doesn't have any true meaning to offer. The soil of, of secularism does not provide the nutrients that we need to persevere through pain and suffering. I read an article this week with, by a simple Google search that confirmed this completely. The article was full of practical advice on, quote, finding your peace with a lot of great ideas, mindfulness, therapy, drink lemon juice for breakfast, do yoga on grass, even several more dubious ideas like psychedelic mushrooms. Um, but there is nothing in this article about finding meaning or purpose in our pain. Nothing, not a word. Nothing about growing as a person through adversity. Nothing about the value of pushing through difficult things. Not one word. But those people who follow Jesus live by a whole other vision of the meaning of life. A vision we receive from Jesus himself. Not from within us, but from him. And in Jesus' vision of the meaning of life, suffering is actually rich. Not only with meaning but with potential to launch us into a greater experience of life. So what's your relationship to suffering? What's your relationship to suffering? Let me invite you, as hopefully we do every single Sunday, to, to take on Jesus as your model. The one who did not avoid suffering, but instead suffered willingly on behalf of you and behalf of me. He took on the very pain of his people, the sin and brokenness that is rightfully ours. He placed it upon himself. He was sold out, pierced, suffered, and died. Now, if that is your king, if that is your leader, 
do you think that he would put you forth in a life where you're not going to suffer at all? That we would live a life of comfort and favor and perfect unity and prosperity? Or did he model for us the value in suffering well? That there is a refining, maturing agent that, that can only come through pain and suffering in our lives. Can we possibly look at the life of Jesus as presented to us in the Gospels and say that suffering should be avoided? Or do we look at the life of the stricken shepherd and see an opportunity, as Jean-Pierre de Cassade put it in the, in the 7th century, to learn to suffer lovingly? Friends, I walk away from this text, as confusing as it can be, with two takeaways that have, I know, the potential to change my daily life, if I can have the courage to live them out. And so I share them with you humbly. Hopefully, you might choose to join me as I commit myself to them. The first is I need to spend time worshiping the pierced one. We know because we know the whole story that the death of Jesus is not a shameful thing in scripture. Because of his resurrection, we understand that the cross was a moment actually of glory. When he purchased us as, as, as a people by the shedding of his blood, when he drove off the buyers and the sellers and the bad shepherds and claimed us as his own. When he took on our sin and, and our shame upon himself so that we could have life. Friends, if, if Zechariah spent three of his 14 chapters focused on the suffering of the good shepherd, I could probably spend more time with the suffering Jesus, the Jesus that goes to the cross. I actually know a pastor friend of mine who literally puts this into his calendar on a weekly basis. He has a slot every single week for one hour that is just pondering Jesus' sacrifice for him. That's it. It's in his calendar. And to me, this seems like a worthwhile practice and a faithful response to a text like Second thing is I need to get clear on my relationship with suffering. Suffering is unavoidable in our lives, no matter how we might try. Um, my back is all good now, by the way, but I've got things in my life that hurt way deeper than back pain. Stresses, losses, fears, relational tensions, grief frustrations, oppositions, and I know that you have those too. We all have a choice before us. Are we going to seek to bypass those things? Are we going to curse those things? Are we going to despise those things? Or are we going to look to Jesus, who actually went through all of those things before us, and say to him, I'm going to own and, and lean into my suffering, Jesus, because I have to trust that you are with me in the midst of it because you've already gone through it. And, and I have to trust that you are doing a maturing and refining work in my life that could never happen if I didn't suffer. If I'm following Jesus as my leader and my model, and that is, that is the anthem of my life, then that's how I have to view suffering. Because that's how he embraced suffering. He committed himself to suffering lovingly. So should all of us who seek to follow him. So Zechariah 11 through 13 invites us to get real about where we are. To look upon the suffering one. To worship him with awe and wonder. And to get clear on how it is that we're going to relate to suffering in our lives.
I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer as we close. I'll invite the band forward. And this prayer is just going to be a prayer for strength to live out this text before us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I want to begin just by looking upon you, the pierced one. The one who went to the cross for me, for all of us. The one who saw our state and became our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring suffering and pain that we could never imagine. Lord, would you teach us what it means to suffer well? Lord, we recognize even even where we are right now in in the stillness of this place, confident of your presence with us, we just name in our hearts the ways in which we feel pain, in which we feel suffering, in which we feel the trials of life. And first, Lord, we just thank you that you have gone through them before us. That you did not avoid them, you did not despise them, you did not think of those as things that were a sign of the lack of God's blessing, but you went through them head on. You suffered well. Would you teach us what it means to suffer well? God, for those of us who are here, who are suffering in ways that are almost unbearable, we plead with you, Lord, would you be doing an even more amazing, refining work through that pain? Would you do a maturing work, Lord, through that pain? Lord, we thank you that even as we ponder you as the suffering servant, even as we look at this text from multiple angles, we do so not as people who are without hope, but as people who know that because of your suffering, we have been redeemed. We are not alone. We are not orphans. That we do not suffer for no reason. We thank you for the hope of your resurrection beyond suffering. And as we await for that glorious hope for ourselves and for your world, would you teach us what it means as your redeemed people to suffer lovingly, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing.